Well, welcome back to another episode of Finding God in Culture here with Drew Thurman and Danny Wright. How's it going, Danny? Man, I'm chilling, illin' and dillin', Drew. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. Uh, great to see your face, though our listeners can. I, I get to see your face, which is a great thing since we live a thousand miles apart. Man, you are glutton for punishment, my friend. <laughs> bless, bless all our listeners. Yes, yes, yes. We're blessing them. So, uh, so I, I got to ask you a question. We yesterday we I wanted to off the top of our show have a little bit of fun. We were texting back and forth. I had seen kind of a funny question that made me think of you about a Twitter game. It said, name a Christian film to be remade by a non-Christian director, which I know is not easy because. It, both of us uh, aren't exactly fans of Christian film, uh, but uh, we it led us down a rabbit trail of some things. So I'd be interested to hear your answer. Uh, is there a Christian film that if it was remade by a non-Christian director might pique your uh, interest or just you know provide some entertainment for you? Well, I would say there are quite a few of them, but I think the one I'm gonna go with um, for uh, our purposes right now is uh, I would love to see what Quentin Tarantino would do with Pilgrim's Progress from John Bunyan. Uh, yeah, that would definitely uh, create quite some, you know, theatrics. You know, I, I can only imagine what he would do to that to that uh, that book and that storyline. Well, I mean, you know, with with his normal tendencies, he would definitely have some fun with uh, some of those. Um, experiences that Pilgrim has. Yes, yes. Well, my answer is much less, uh, you know, it's way shallower than that. Uh, (laughs) Yesterday, yesterday, uh, it did lead me down a a dark rabbit trail of Christian movies. I was looking up because, you know, I've only seen a couple. And we discovered that Kirk Cameron, a handful of years ago, did a movie called Saving Christmas. So it's it's got an awesome uh, 1.4 stars out of 10 on IMBD, which is... uh, (laughs) <laughs> really, really saying something. It's uh, one of probably the worst pieces of, um, you know, film ever made. Uh, the, the, the pre- that, trailer, that trailer is brutal. <laughs> the trailer alone, I, I it looked, uh, I couldn't believe it. it. Looked like a high schooler had done it. Uh, but I was thinking, you know what? With that theme and you know, kind of this, you know, the the definitely the cover looks very action packed. I want to see Michael Bay redo that. <laughs> And, yes. So yes. Give him, give him, a, give him a, a bunch of money to just throw as many explosions as possible, and let Kirk Cameron be the star. And you know what? I don't care what the storyline is. I'm in. I'm going to watch it. Hey, hey, and a transformer here and there wouldn't hurt anything. <laughs> Not at all. So, well, there you go. Uh, you know, glad glad you've tuned in for another episode of Finding God in Culture, and let's cue the intro. God gives us life, breath, and everything else. In him, we live, we move, and we have our being. He keeps on speaking. He keeps on transmitting. He continues to show up and never stops revealing. We have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pay attention in print, over the air, and on every size of screen. Our moleskin is open, our pen is ready, and the mic is live. Let's find God in culture.
Well, yes, thank you for tuning into another episode of Finding God in Culture. And we're excited to dive right in. But before we do, um, wanted to just quickly explain where we are headed in this episode and kind of the format that we're going to be following in all of our episodes moving forward. Uh, last episode, we kind of introduced the main idea of what it means to find God and culture and kind of our aim in this podcast. And a lot of what we're going to be doing is actually teaching some of those skills, um, both in some of the conversations and some of the applications we're giving, but also just in the format that we're following um, naturally in the conversation. And so uh, actually our format is based off of some of Paul's words in Acts 17. I know that's something, Danny, you've been writing about for a number of years. So why don't you go ahead introduce that, talk about X-17, and we can explain a little bit better how we're uh, breaking down this podcast. Thanks, Drew. Um, yeah, Acts 17 uh, has definitely been a passage that will not let me go. Uh, it's one of those passages that um, you really remember what Paul said um, when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can prove what God's will is good his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, I mean, I like that. But then I also like what the writer of Hebrews says. When the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, it pierces even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts, intents, and attitudes of our heart. The writer of Hebrews is really helping us to understand why this passage of Scripture will not let me go, because every time I come to it, it becomes deeper and more meaningful and becomes... Um, it begins to show me how, how little I do know, how much I want to know, and it, and it, and it fuels me to continue seeking. Um, especially a couple of parts of it. Paul has been out in the agora, in the marketplace, and he's been talking to people when he could have taken some time off, but no, he's meeting people where they are. He's having conversations that matter, and they say, wait a minute. You need to go to the Areopagus. You need to go to Mars Hill. You need to talk to the people who keep an eye on what's going on in culture. And so Paul goes there, and in his message, he never, ever quotes Scripture. He only alludes to Scripture over and over and over again. But he quotes pagan poets. And when I realized that he was able to be conversant in the pagan poets, this man who had studied under Gamaliel, this man who knew, you know, the, you know, the Judaistic faith and who was now, you know, had been tra trained by Christ and had, had learned all of these things, but he still was able to be conversant with the popular opinion and the popular culture. I was like, uh, I've got some work to do. <laughs> and man, I tell you, there are two triads in this text that absolutely blow me away. Um, he says, um, for in, he first of all says this, he says that God gives us life and breath and everything else. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, how I love when things are put so succinctly and here he is saying, you know, you get life and breath and everything from God. Okay. And then he moves down a few verses later and he breaks down another triad. He says, as one of your poets has said in him, we live and move and have our being. And I tell you, ever since these verses really began to sink into my heart, sink into my soul, and actually penetrate my thick skull, I realized how unbelievably important it is 
to realize that there is no line between sacred and secular, to realize that everywhere we go and everything that we do and everything that we see, we are meeting this God who created and continues to recreate, this God who desires uh, that none would perish and that all would come to repentance, this God who sends messages through bushes and through pagan pens and through uh you know, the most unlikeliest of corners, as David Dark would say. He just continues to send these messages. And, um, and so it's tried to, I, I think it's helped me to live a life of attentiveness, of awareness, and of awakeness. That's awesome. Well, and I think as you're describing that, and I know it's been passionate, been a passion of yours, one for me too. We thought what better way to break down our podcast and so that live, move, and have our being, uh, that second triad you just described, is going to be the format and going to be the skeleton of how we, we have conversation every single podcast. And so uh, we're going to talk about in our living and a lot of you know, our interactions with pop culture, uh, where have we been seeing God at work? Where do we see some of his themes? When we talk about our movements and our day-to-day -day lives of, of ways that we've interacted, where have we been seeing him move? And then I think we're always going to have in that being piece, talk a little bit more philosophically, um, maybe a little bit more at depth into our souls and the way that we critically think and interact with culture. Um, we'll probably always, you know, maybe even be doing some interviews in that as well, but think more critically with our being, uh, with the soup that we swim in, as you described in the last episode, um, what's going on and where God might be moving there. And so it's a great way for us to break down the podcast. And I got to say, as well, as you were describing Acts 17, I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you before, uh, but I love that passage as well. I've preached on it a number of times, and I've actually gotten to, to go there um, in Athens. Um, I've always loved it because, you know, the Apostle Paul, like you described, uh, wasn't just well-versed in Christian or Jewish um, literature and, and life. He really knew his, the culture around him and really could step in on an intellectual level and a philosophical level and hold his own and show that uh, Christianity wasn't uh, just a religion for uh, uninformed or illiterate or uh, dumb people um, in many ways. But yeah, I actually, my wife and I on our five-year anniversary, we were um, going through Airbnb, through Greece spent a lot of our time down the Greek Isles and did so pretty cheaply. It was awesome. But uh, the, one of the highlights of my trip, we spent a couple of nights in Athens. And as cool as all, I mean, it's, you know, ancient Athens is just incredible. But the whole time, my wife can tell you, I kept annoying her and saying, I got to get up to the Areopagus. I got to get up to Mars Hill. And it's so funny because it's not even enclosed in the area you kind of have to, that's like gated when you're going up to the Acropolis and, and the stuff that uh, when people are on tours and stuff, they want to go visit. But you come down the hill and, you know, here is this, there's no even buildings left or anything else, but there's this rocky outcropping overlooking the whole city. And they've got on the side of the stone face, this probably 10, 15 foot placard with Paul's uh, sermon, his speech, so to speak, from Acts 17 in Greek. And so it was pretty cool. I got to walk the steps Paul probably walked when he was going up there to give that talk. And one of the coolest places and coolest things I've ever gotten to do. Oh man, I hope I get to go there someday. You should. And if you do, make sure, I know you love food, just down the hill, uh, Plaka, kind of some of those ancient streets. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, 
a lot of famous writers have said the best thing you can do in Plaka is to get lost because there is so much good food to be be found off the beaten path. And I'll tell you what, I have never ate better than I have there. Well, I look forward to getting lost there and hopefully I'll find some Spanakopita and some, bala, uh, and some baklava. <laughs> it won't be too hard to find. I well, that's a great, uh, yes, great intro. Helps people understand where we're going. Let's just go ahead and jump right in then. If we've got three main parts, living, moving, and having our being, let's talk through that first one of living. Where have you been seeing God at work? You know, when you're reading, when you're watching things, when you're taking in uh, art in different forms, where have you been seeing him move? Where have you seen God at work? Maybe in surprising ways. And in doing so, maybe help uh, teach our audience a little bit of what it looks like to interact with those things critically. Sure. Um, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is um, I took a friend to Arkansas recently. And, um, you know, I'll be honest with you. I, I've been to Arkansas before. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, I've been to Arkansas before. Um, but when I left Lambert's, which uh, I hope you get a chance to enjoy one day, you and I talked about the fact you hadn't been there. Uh, the fried okra will keep you coming back. Um, I, I left the Branson area and I went down south and I turned this corner into this amazing town. Um, you know, all these buildings from the 1800s and, you know, these tight streets. And I, I mean, it just reminded me of a place in Europe, even though I've not spent much time in Europe. Um, I mean, it just, it was so beautiful and it was so cool. And they have this large Christ of the Ozark statue up on the hill. So before I was leaving town, I was like, I got to go see this Christ of the Ozark statue. I go up there and, um, and, you know, we hung around and went through the gift shop and all that kind of stuff. And then I sort of drove around to the other edge where, where the statue is. I took some pictures. It was pretty powerful, just a beautiful evening. And as I was leaving that area, I was driving back up the hill and there's a little chapel there you can go in, they've got the fans turning, you know, and they've got all the old seats. It looks like it was something from, you know, the 1900s. Um, and I, I mean, I thought that was cool, but I'm like, what is that beside there? <laughs> they had a 10 by 10 foot section of the Berlin wall. And I was just <laughs> in Arkansas of all places. I know in Arkansas. And I was just so moved by it. I was like, I have to get out and take a picture of this. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to read the German that's on it. You know, you're thinking back through the times I mean, Drew, I, you know, I'm a little bit older than you. Okay, quite a bit older than you. I mean, wow, have things changed. And they have changed so quickly. And oh, how much and how desperately they need to continue to change. You know, especially with some of the things our country has experienced over these last few weeks during the pandemic and, and with what happened in Minneapolis and all those things. And so, I mean, I, I just, I was moved. I stood there, I took a couple of pictures. And then I realized that next to that, well, something else I wasn't sure what it was. And so I walked over to see what it was, and it was two bomb shelters, bomb bunkers uh, from Israel. And, you know, I just, it was just powerful to see those there and, and to walk in and to feel the heat inside of that, you know, because it was still holding on to the heat from the day and, and to hear the sound as it echoed off and to think about what it would have been like to be in the Gaza Strip and to be hunkered down in one of these things, hoping and praying that, you know, you're going to be alive enough to even open that, you know, metal door that's very much like, you know, the, <laughs> the door at a bank safe, you know. And, I, you know, I just I had to think back through some of the things that I'd been hearing. I even thought back to a Michael Franti song. Uh, that I'd heard that day in which Michael Franti says, uh, we can bomb the world into pieces, 
but we can't bomb the world into peace. Hmm. And you know, Michael Franti, um, he's, he's one of those guys um, that is a one world religion guy. He, he, you know, he hopes some things will be legalized that, uh, you know, many Christians <laughs> hope don't be legalized. It won't be legalized, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But there's something about his music. It's that reggae meets um, R&B meets, you know, folk. And, and he's just, he knows, how to, he knows how to appreciate the gift of life. One of my friends recently told me, they said, I like the way he makes me feel about life. And so, you know, when we listen to stuff like that, it sticks with us. When we walk into these places, you, we don't even realize that God is preparing me as I listen to that song, and, you know, to stop when I was stopping to get gas that morning in Terre Haute, I had no idea that he was preparing me for those bomb shelters. And so when I got there, I just, I, I even recorded something in there and I wanted to hear the echo and I wanted to hear the sound. And it just connected me with the rest of the world and made me realize how much more uh, I need to be effective in praying and in caring. And so anyway, uh, that's one of the things there. I mean, there are so many, but um, I, I, I will mention one more, Memphis. Oh my goodness. I, I mean, if you've never been to Memphis, go to Memphis. If you've never spent time in Memphis, uh, go spend time in Memphis. Um, man, I, I, I went by the Lorraine um, and, you know, it moves me every time to see the place where Martin Luther King was shot. Mm. To think about his life and his commitment to, um, to Christ and to changing a culture. Um, and I did something I hadn't done before. I actually got to go to the Claiborne Temple African, African Methodist Episcopal Church, where a lot of the sanitation worker strike uh, was organized and talked about. And they have a park right there by the church with the I am a man statue. Hmm. And I tell you, I walked around reading all of those events, reminding myself of the order of how they happened and thinking about Union, the musical by Show Baraka, which uh, goes into this whole thing of the sanitation worker strike and, and just, you know, being thankful for our uh, forefathers in the faith who have who have lived their lives on the edge who have been sold out to christ who realize i'm crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but christ lives in me and i, I just i can't even tell you i mean it was so hot that night in memphis but you know what i didn't even care that's that's awesome well i and just hearing you talk inspires me always because you do have such a natural holy curiosity and I know we talk about it a lot, but just even hearing you describe those stories, uh, great examples. Um, and cool. I mean, it's awesome how you're like intertwining, you know, buildings with art that, you know, you've got musicals combined with statues and uh, the Berlin Wall and, and bunkers with, with, with music. That's a, that's a pretty cool intertwining. So uh, for me, you know, I, I have not been, um, you know, uh, I don't have anything that, that amazing to talk about. I've been stuck at home a lot in the midst of a quarantine and um, just where we live here in Boston, people are taking it pretty, you know, pretty cautiously. And so have we, but it has lended me some time to extra reading and watching some things. And at night we're starting to get both of our, our little ones down. So I've got a little bit of time and I've actually been watching uh, several, I've been on a documentary kick and 
also a docu-series kick my wife's been wanting to watch down to earth with Zac Efron so she can watch <laughs> him that's a whole other story I'm frustrated because people are saying that he has a dad bod and I think that is just that's hurtful to all of us who actually have dad bods because he just has a six-pack with hair now so it's like it's still the six-pack just with hair so, what manscaped hey what do you yeah. know <laughs> yeah but it's not a dad bod okay so let's not let's let's be legit and be real about that but uh probably the best thing i've been seeing recently uh was crip camp a documentary by actually i think uh, barack and michelle obama helped uh were executive producers on it and i didn't realize you know this is the third you know this is 30 years since the american disabilities act was passed in 1990 and there was legislation before that that was actually passed for the first time that was uh pretty controversial and wasn't actually followed through from, from multiple presidents. But I never realized the story behind that. I just always assumed that caretakers or, you know, people that were advocates had fought for that for the disabled community. And I didn't realize that they had kind of created their own civil rights movement mm. and done that themselves. And so this documentary is telling that whole story of how it really all birthed at this camp in upstate New York, the summer camp, where these hippies would, uh, you know, all these parents with children or adolescents with disabilities would send them up there. And these hippies that uh, basically just wanted to get away from home for the summer would all be up there and take care of them. And what was so amazing was uh, by just giving like giving them permission to live life, everyone else, everything else in life was telling them, you don't really matter. And you need to be relegated to this classroom or to, to your own people or to this room. They were letting them live life like they were normal human beings. And that gave them, that was the seeds that gave them uh, this voice that, yes, we need to champion. We can go live life. Many of them moved out of home after that. Many of them ended up in California, you know, in the midst of all of the, that, that movement uh, and began to fight. And the story is amazing. And I think it just, for me, as I was watching, there's so many moments we don't have time for me to talk about, but it was just a reminder to me of the power of when we see someone else's humanity. And uh, for us in the Christian world, we would say when we see someone's Imago Dei, when we see the image of God in them, and we see like they have value. And so much of our society, we're fighting backs against so many different things right now. And yet there's so many other things we're not fighting for. And that's even one we we really in so many of our societal forces dehumanize people and here here are this this group of people to this day that we're still not very good at advocating for or caring and seeing their their intrinsic value and this documentary was just like i, I cried a bunch i laughed a bunch <laughs> and i cannot recommend it enough um later on in this you're gonna do you're gonna be doing you're the reviewer of the two of us but uh for me being the uh the noob reviewer i am uh, let me just say crip camp two thumbs up and uh, definitely, definitely worth your time. So some cool things there. Uh, how about moving? You know, we talked a little bit, we're seeing God in our living. What about moving your everyday life? Where have you seen God at work? Um, you know, you've already mentioned a little bit of that. You've actually had the luxury of traveling in the last uh, a little bit. I don't know if there's any other travels that, that come to mind or if there's anything else in your everyday life that's come up, but what, what does your everyday life look like and where have you seen God at work in that? Well, I might take it a little bit a different way too with something that's moved me. But before, before I even say that, uh, I did go to Pittsburgh with my wife uh, recently and um, the Heinz History Center 
is truly one of my favorite places in America uh, because it has a lot of the uh, props that were actually used uh, in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Um, he has a stole there that's basically a sweater vestment that he wore when he preached at the Presbyterian Church. I went by, took a picture of the church where he preached. Man, would it have been cool to sit and listen to Mr. Rogers preach. Um, you know, there was, um, there was also some... Um, just some amazing stuff uh, that I that I had the opportunity to do. I'm sorry, I got a phone call there. It distracted me for a moment. No. Um, I thought I, ha I had it turned off, but evidently it still wants to ring. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I went to May May's Mandarin Gourmet downtown and had um, got to have dinner um, right there where Tom Hanks had dinner in the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, where he, you know, he chow. I mean, it's where the journalist begins to start changing his thinking. I mean, you know, Mr. Rogers in the form of Tom Hanks says, I want you to take a minute and think about all the people who have loved you into being. And my wife and I did that right there. Oh man, you want to talk about moving mm -hmm. and being waited on by the same guy who waited on Tom Hanks and the whole staff. I, I mean, it was just so cool. The conversation we had and amazing Chinese food. That wasn't bad either. Um, <laughs> But, so you Mr. Know, Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers had a good taste in Chinese food. That's good to know. Well, actually, I don't know if they ever ate there or not, but that's the <laughs> place they chose, you know, since it was downtown and everything. But, okay. um, yeah, that was really cool. Um, so that was special for me. But I'll tell you something else that was special. Uh, I was able to finish the um, Unbelievable series last night. And I have been so moved by that television show. It's a limited series on Netflix. And it's just amazing how Karen Duvall plays her role. Uh, it's actually, I think her real name is Mary Weaver. She plays Karen Duvall in the film, but she's a Christian and she's very committed to Christ. And um, one of the other, uh, you know, people that she's working with very closely played by Tony Collette has, you know, no desire to have anything to do with Christianity. And so to see their interplay during these very difficult moments that deal with, um, them trying to find this serial rapist um, and just the struggle of how hard it is, the difficulty of realizing, you know, how many people are injured through such horrible means in our country to realize that there are police who are uh, not very gifted at listening. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are those who are gifted at listening. Um, and I mean, it's just a very powerful moving film. One of my one of my favorite moments was um, the young one of the young ladies named Amber in the film actually came to the church where uh, Karen Duvall went to church, and and you know the conversation they had after that. You know she she says I'm glad you were here. You know and and it's just it's a very powerful moving thing that I think we should watch and and it should really drive us to prayer, Drew, uh, about. Uh, the mess that um, our social relationships are in in this in this society, and the difficulties that we have with realizing how much pain is actually swirling around us as we move, as we live and move and have our being in God. Hmm. Man, that's really good. Wait, did you say that's on Netflix? It is on Netflix. Yes, and it's a limited series, eight eight episodes, um, and I don't think you'll regret it. Um, I mean, there is some NSFW language and so forth, and there's some scenes that uh, 
you'll not want to remember. But I mean, it is a very, very powerful presentation. And I, I mean, I can't stop thinking about it. Hmm. I've been moved. That's awesome. No, that's you're you are my uh, my Netflix guru. So I appreciate it. Um, got I just got to confess right now that I am great at reading, great at listening to music. I consume a lot of those things. Uh, I enjoy movies, uh, mostly in theater. Um, and I've not been in a season right now with having two young kids and now COVID to experience much of that. But right. My wife's quite excited that we have this podcast going because she claims that I start series or even mini series and then don't finish them. And so she's quite excited that I have to talk to you and be held accountable to things uh, when it comes to my, what I say I'm going to watch or the, or the list that you give me. So uh, I will write that one down and my wife will be excited. We'll have to see that one out. So very nice. Well, I think for me, uh, I'm, I'm going to take it a different direction too. I think what's moving me right now is just being a dad. Uh, when we talk about living and moving and having our being, you know, I've got a, my oldest is uh, Annie is a three now, turned three back in June. And the world through, uh, seeing the world through a toddler's eyes just brings about wonder and amazement and, and re-enchantment naturally. I think there's a reason why Jesus commends us to uh, have a faith like a child. He tells us that the kingdom of God is like these little ones. And I think that's what he's trying to get at for us is that not to be childish, but to be childlike. And just been reminded a lot recently uh, of, of uh, GK Chesterton has a famous quote that he talks about the fact that, um, you know, kids love to say, do it again, do it again. And we as adults actually get tired and that maybe God is actually, I think he has this, I've got it pulled up right now, but he says maybe God is actually abounding in vitality like a child and actually says every morning the, the sun isn't just naturally coming up. He actually tells the sun to say, do it again. Every daisy, it's not an act of monotony to him to make another one. He says, do it again, do it again. And he has this thing that uh, he basically says, uh, maybe he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And that all of the world around us might be this theatrical encore, just over and over again of God living in that realm. I see that through my daughter's eyes so much. It moves me often. Just even, you know, I love, we've got a, a homeless guy at the end of the street uh, on our block and sits outside a lot with his, his grocery cart. And my daughter thinks he's just as amazing as anyone else. I just love looking around. She treats everybody the same. Everyone's amazing. Everything, everyone has this value and has something amazing they might tell her or might say. And, you know, something about us, you know, we look at a child and we say, how, you know, how naive, you know, <laughs> they need to know that not everyone's like that. Why do, why do we think that? Why, why are we that cynical? And so it is, I've been moved so often looking through her, uh, you know, she gets a Christmas gift uh, or a birthday gift. She doesn't even know what it is. She rips it up and her eyes light up and she gasps and she's like, oh, it's amazing. What is it? She doesn't even know what it is. <laughs> she's just so excited uh, because that's life is just amazing to her. Every time she opens a door, every time she sees something for the first time, it is the greatest thing that has ever been. And what we could, what, I think that's worship. Isn't that what God's wanting from us? If we're going to truly, you know, live, 
is to look and, and have that appreciation and say, man, everything God is doing around us is this incredible, transcendent, wonderful, mysterious, miraculous gift. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I, I could go on and on and on, but just looking through her eyes, been amazing for me. Well, <clears throat> amen. And may we all recapture that wonder. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we have lots more to say, but we have plenty of other episodes to do so. Uh, we're actually going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk about a book uh, that has been a center point of a lot of conversation for us recently. <coughs> uh, during that break, we're actually going to be hearing a review from you, uh, which is going to just become a tradition for us on this podcast uh, where you are going to be recommending something uh, or not recommending it, I guess, uh, that you've been taking in recently. So excited for that at the break, and we'll pick right back up on the other side. One minute to review it? Are you serious, Drew? The end of the tour was the exact gift I was hoping for during my quarantine. David Foster Wallace, played by Jason Segel, was a brilliant author who was struggling with all of his might, wit, and spiraling depression to make sense of a world that seemed to be increasingly inane and determinately devoid of authentic love, inspiring hope, and true meaning. David Lipsky of Rolling Stone, played by Jesse Eisenberg, zealously wanted to interview Wallace because of his brilliant prose, but realized in the end that their paths had ultimately coalesced to offer each other a stint of genuine, spirited companionship that nurtured their souls and relieved, even if for a moment, their longing for authentic connection. You never know how much five days can change your trajectory. Their conversations and experiences will give you enough fodder to examine your own life and the very soul of our society for years to come. And that is no infinite jest. Well, welcome back. Uh, glad that we uh, got a review from you. Are you going to do a star star rating with it? Well, you know, there'll be Danny stars and uh, Danny stars are not comparable to IMDb or to any other film rating service. Uh, but we're going to give that one five stars on a one to five star basis because of uh, the conversation in engineers and because of the thoughts that it provokes. Awesome. Well, you, you told me I need to watch it. So it's on my list. Can't, can't wait to take that in. Well, in this last segment on being, uh, again, breaking down those three parts of that triad um, from Act 17, uh, we're going to be talking this time about a book that you actually recommended to me. Uh, it's been the center point of a bunch of conversation called Everyday Apocalypse by David Dark. I loved it. Um, read it in basically two sittings. So you were the, the starting point of that. So I want you to talk about it. Uh, why don't you give a quick summary for our audience and then maybe just describe why, why in the world did you recommend it? All right. Uh, thanks, Drew. I, I was in a class uh, that I've already mentioned today with Mary McCampbell, and um, she actually knows David Dark, who teaches at Belmont uh, University in Nashville. And she introduced this quote to us. And when she introduced this quote to us that I'm about to read, I was like, uh, I'm getting that book. Uh, I mean, the subtitle of the book is finding, finding God in, you know, in Radiohead and the Simpsons and so forth. And I'm like, uh, this is all about what I love, you know, and it's all about what I care about. But listen to this quote, Drew. It says, apocalyptic cracks the pavement of the status quo. It irritates and disrupts the feverishly defended norms of whatever culture it engages. 
Another thing he says in the book, in this sense, apocalyptic is the place where the future pushes into the present. It's the breaking in of another dimension, a new wine for which our old wineskins are unprepared. I, I've got two pages of just his idea of what the apocalyptic is. And, you know, when we think of apocalyptic, as people who've been to Bible college, I mean, we immediately think of the end of times. We immediately think of the book of Revelation, the end of our scriptures. We begin to think about, you know, the fact that apocalyptic uh, literature is written in code, you know, and we think about all these kinds of things that you start thinking about this and you're like, well, the book of Revelation and everybody goes, well, I, you know, Revelation is so hard to read, it's hard to understand. Dark is not talking about that idea of apocalypse. What he's talking about uh, is this idea of how God continues to break into the everyday, how the divine continues to explode into our existence and into our reality, and how, you know, it's very much the idea of Moses uh, by the burning bush. You know, he sees this bush. When he sees this strange sight and turns aside, what happens? The bush talks to him. Oh, my goodness. Luckily, it says his name twice. And so that's probably a term of endearment. He moves a little bit closer. It tells him to take off his shoes because the place where he's standing is holy ground. And his idea is that Dark believes that whenever we move through this world, I, 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 he wouldn't say this, but I will, that we should be barefoot <laughs> because of the idea that God is always present and is always sending messages. And, and so why would I, why would I ask you to read this book? Why would I, why have I told other people to read this book? Why have I been talking about it so much lately? Because I'm going to tell you something. It is everything about which our podcast is about. It is about realizing that as we live and move and have our being, we are meeting God, not just in the sacred and secular places that we expect to meet him. No, it's about meeting him in the unlikeliest corners. It's about meeting him in the secular, the most secular of places. And by the way, I don't believe there is a delineation between sacred and secular anyway. I'm just using these words because they're the words that we often, that we often try to dichotomize this world into. And I'm going to tell you something. I, I believe that we live and move and have our being in a God who is always revealing himself, always wishing that none would perish and that all would come to repentance. And so we get this joy of finding him in the easy to find places as well as the difficult to find places. Well, I think you did a great job explaining it. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, for me, when I was reading it, one of the most powerful things he, you know, the early couple of chapters he describes and really breaks down what he means by apocalypse, just like you did, you know, described. And, um, and, and really, I mean, as he kind of breaks down that that's not just coming from, from what we would say overtly, you know, spiritual uh, things, um, that it really does, or from religious things, it's coming from everybody. And then I think what's awesome is then he starts every chapter, um, some of his influences starts to teach what does it look like, uh, in, you know, whether it is The Simpsons or Flannery O'Connor or with movies like The Matrix and The Truman Show, whatever it is, Radiohead, you know, um, Beck, you know, whatever it is, you know, how, wh where, do we, where do we begin to, to see that taking place? And so um, I, I, loved, I loved it from that standpoint um, of him not just describing it, but then kind of teaching you. And obviously he's brilliant. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit of a heavy read sometimes. He's brilliant. And so his understanding of how art works um, 
and you know being able to read between the lines is is a skill that does take some time um you you have to be a little bit more thoughtful in your interactions with art and with popular culture than most of us are uh, he makes that point several times in the book but he does a great job of teaching you beginning to make you think critically about the things that you're you're doing so um with that one of the things we thought would be fun is maybe just sharing some of our favorite quotes and then talking about them. So uh, why don't you start us off, Dan? I mean, I'm, I've already let you cheat. You have already gotten a few in. So that was a nice work of you. But uh, was... Well, I mean, I was only supposed to have five. So I had to do something <laughs> to get these other ones in on the side. <laughs> I, so... I, I was telling Drew earlier today, everybody, I have 10 pages of notes that I have. Well, all right, 12 pages of notes that I have actually broken this down to. Uh, so to think that there were more than that to begin with is kind of scary. But I tell you, yeah, I, I love the fact that Dark is really helping us understand that we need to be awake, aware, and attentive, and that we need to be the kind of people who are always um, ready to learn, to grow, and to be taught by even people that we don't think sometimes should teach us. Um, so here we go. I, I'm going to start with my first quote. Um, and I'm probably going to sneak in a B on this one, if you'll let me. Okay. It's one of the 1A and 1B. <laughs> okay. I'm grateful for and in dire need of whatever art can keep me awake and alive to the mystery. Whatever keeps me paying attention. Whatever reminds me that none of us and no ideology are possessors of the final say. Art that doesn't bear witness to the opaque, the mysterious or even allow any ambiguity is propaganda at best and at worst, a ministry of death, an exercise in sentimentalizing self-congratulatory delusion. <laughs> I'm so ticked. That was my number one quote that I had written down. <laughs> my man. Well, this, this is what I was hoping for. I was hoping you and I would have some of the same ones. So yeah. I read it. You talk about it. How about that? Well, I think, I think it's, again, it's what we're describing. I think it's awesome that he's saying that art is, should be a form, it, it should be apocalyptic in nature. So when art is done properly uh, and when it's at its best, it is this crash, it is transcendent. It's, it is that meeting and that merging as you were describing earlier in the definition of heaven and earth colliding together. And um, he actually, there's a bunch of different quotes he has uh, in the book that describe very similar concepts. Um, but he's, you know, basically just, you know, saying anything that just lulls us to sleep, anything that's just sentimental, anything that just allows us to have a, you know, kind of a cursory look is not good art. Yes. Uh, it by its very nature uh, should cause us to stop and ponder and experience wonder and uh, to challenge the status quo and any art that's not uh, really isn't, isn't worth its weight. Well, and I love his continued press towards beauty. See, like if you ask me to try to tell you more about End of the Tour, I was lost in the beauty of two people, two brilliant people, just continuing to try and figure out where in the world they connected why they connected, and what does connection even mean? It was beautiful. Um, my B quote to that one, 
uh, is this. James Joyce viewed the role of the artist as that of a kind of priest who can convert the seemingly mundane daily bread of common experience into the radiant body of everlasting, never-ending life. And you know what, Drew? That's you as a translator of transcendence. That's all of us who love Jesus. It is our responsibility to be the priests who can recognize God in the mundane of everyday life and allow that common experience that we have that connects us with everybody around us, all of our neighbors, and gives us the opportunity to speak about that which goes way beyond anything that we normally are even clued in about. Well, you're two for two. I had that one down too. So you're oh. just stealing, stealing up. And I'm like, you, I don't have 12 pages of notes. So I'm going to have to work through this. Uh, okay. Here's one for me, because uh, I love that one as well. And I think I don't need to say anymore because you did a great job. We kind of alluded to this earlier, but I thought this was great too. For the apocalyptic mind, there isn't a secular molecule in the, molecule in the universe. No matter outside the scope of its coming kingdom, no nook, cranny, exempt from the redemption it announces, neither Jesus nor any Jewish prophet ever instructed his listeners to merely repent spiritually. And I love that whole idea that we're just describing, that there is no delineation between sacred and secular. We begin to look and we just see everything as, and we begin to see spirituality and everything. We begin to see, uh, you know, this coming kingdom being announced uh, even in some of the, the places that we, we never thought. So I love, um, I love that quote because it's kind of hammering home. I don't know if you've got any extra thoughts on that, but. No, I, I absolutely love that one too. No nook cranny. I mean, I, his, his writing just, it brings joy to you as you start hearing it and as he starts laying these things out. And, and I tell you, I almost said this earlier and this might get us in trouble with some people if they don't catch the illusion we'll just go ahead and leave it alone because i've never watched it i don't even know but you know there is somebody who used to say everything is spiritual i'm just going to say that <laughs> feel free to look it up and boy we'll probably hear about that one yeah, so maybe. anyway um here's a quote from i wasn't going to use this one i saw i probably should just skip it all right i wasn't going to use that one so i'll skip to something else let's see man there's so many great things in here um Okay, one of, the, one of the lines that I absolutely love that came up in conversation over and over again after I read this. For example, I was having lunch with a friend of mine, uh, eating the best chicken wings in the entire country. Uh, no offense to Fran and Teresa's Anchor Bar and Grill in Buffalo where they were created, but uh, we have the best here in Indianapolis. So anyway, um, this line, to borrow a phrase from Miroslav Volf, the economy of undeserved grace has primacy over the economy of moral desserts. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine who, um, who was telling me about some of the struggles that they had experienced in life. And, and you know, there are these moments when we want things to be made right for us. <laughs> there are those moments when we, you know, when we want to be vindicated. There are those moments when we want, and we just need to remember <laughs> the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf. The economy of undeserved grace takes primacy, has primacy over the economy of moral deserts. I, I would rather err on the side of grace. I want people to know the love of God uh, and the mercy and the peace that he provides. I want them to be able to know the abundant forgiveness that is offered by our Savior. And you know what? Uh, I'm just probably going to have to, I'm just going to probably have to take that one on the chin. 
No, and I think that's a great message right now in our culture. So we definitely, uh, we struggle with that. And uh, yeah, erring on the side of grace. Uh, one for me, I really, I would probably say the section that just stood out to me the most. I loved uh, that of the Truman Show, loved that movie, um, loved the, the spiritual themes. But I, you know, a lot of the quotes I picked, I, I, I you know, tried to not get ones that were too nuanced. Um, and I, I think he has one from the Truman Show. If anyone's obvious, I, hopefully most of the audience has seen it. I hope they have. Uh, yeah, yeah, I really hope so too. But this kind of insulated, kind of created reality for a reality show uh, that he's he's living in. Um, and, but I, I love it. I think he's describing something that is true of also all of human experience. And this is, again, uh, Dark being able to teach us to see larger themes in the art that he's looking at. But he says, Truman was commodified in his mother's womb. And from birth onward, his existence has been carefully scripted against the possibility of epiphany, reflection, or wonder. The survival of illusion and the success of its economy thrive upon laziness of thought and the deadened imagination. In this sense, apocalyptic is a virus that could infect and to destroy the entire system. And what he's describing there is obviously everything in Truman's world is fighting him and looking and saying anything that creates epiphany, reflection, or wonder is going to get you out of this insulated reality we've created for you. And I think in many ways, Western culture has buffered us into the same, um, you know, the same idea. Um, you know, I'm not going to start diving into the, the deep ideas of a secular age from Charles Taylor and his idea of the buffered self. But he basically describes that, that we are in this insulated reality in, in our uh, Western individualism, and it is becoming almost impossible for us to experience wonder and beauty and epiphany and reflection in the same way we used to. And so, again, that's why I love this book and why we need art. That's why we need great artists and great writers and great directors that poke holes in, in the ceiling, so to speak, and allow us uh, to see the sun uh, reflecting and, and uh, glistening through because we have been in a dark room for far too long and our minds have been deadened to what is truly beautiful and wonderful about our existence. Yeah, we need to be punching holes in the dark, my friend. You're yes. right about that. Um, I evidently got off my list. I even numbered these things, so I'm in trouble. But anyway, uh, here's, a, here's another long quote. I apologize. Yeah. It is in short, what we mean today by such terms as ideologies, the zeitgeist, Customs, public opinion, peer pressure, institutional expectations, mobs, jingoistic patriotism, and that constitute the power of the air, the invisible but palpable environment of opinions, beliefs, propaganda, convictions, prejudices, hatreds, racial and class biases, taboos, and loyalties that condition our perception of the world long before we reach the age of choice, often before we reach the age of speech. It kills us precisely because we breathe it in before we ever even realize it is noxious. Like fish in water, we are not even aware that it exists, much less that it determines the way we think, speak, and act. I think that's that culture you were talking about that we have been buffered in. And we are lost in that culture, and we don't even realize we're in that culture. I mean, if I know you're, you know what I'm going to Drew, I think this is exactly what you're talking about in that, that buffered self, that, that insulated society that we've become in. We don't even realize that the things we believe, 
I mean, we assume they're Christian, but they're not. They're so lost in the culture. And, and we are so not Christian in the way we think and the way we love and the way we care and the way that we act. I, I mean, you know, we, we're breathing in these noxious fumes before we even know they're noxious. And it, and it refers to none other than our man, David Foster Wallace, who in his Kenyan commencement speech tells the story of the fish, two fish swimming along. And there's an older fish that swims by and he goes, hey, boys, how's the water? And they answer um, they swim on a little bit further and then they go, I- I'll change it for our listeners. Uh, they go, what in the world's water? <laughs> because they don't even realize they're existing in water. And we don't realize that we are lost in this water, like fish in water. We are not able uh, even aware it exists and that it determines the culture has determined the way we think, the way we speak and the way we act, not Jesus. Yep. I so, love, I love the David Foster Wallace quote. And, and yeah, I think, it's exactly, again, uh, it's, it's changing the idea of saying is that, you know, there's really not sacred and secular, but there are, our culture in of itself is tending to push us away uh, at times. I would say technology does this often, but deadening us to the transcendence that's around us. And we need, uh, we need reminders. We need people to scream at us to see something greater. I would also say our individualism does that a lot to ourselves too. When truth is no greater than what I, when I, what I feel or think, it is much harder for me to start to appreciate the, the grandeur that is happening around me um, in, in everything. And so uh, I think you're, you're getting at something great. And I need to be humble enough and aware enough that I don't know what I think I know. Mm-hmm. And that I'm probably much more ignorant than I really believe I am. And that I need to be attentive to all of the voices around me, to God's revelations, his apocalypse, his apocalyptic in, you know, in break. Yep. Did you have another one? Yeah, uh, this actually came from, I just thought uh, this is a little bit of a deviation from what we're talking about. But I, I loved the section on Flannery O'Connor. I am a huge Flannery O'Connor fan. Um, I know there was a big hit piece that was originally written, recently written about her. And, I, you know, I do think there were some things that, in her personal life, she needed to get right when it came to, you know, some um, prejudice and some maybe some racism, but uh, just an incredible short story writer. And uh, he has a quote on her great writing. He says, you walk through her stories like you're walking through a complete real world and watch how the meaning comes from the things themselves and not from her imposing anything. Right when you finish reading that story, you don't think you've read anything. But the more you think about it, the more it grows. And I love that because it's one, one, it's so true. And then two, that is great art. You know, we have, you know, so much of art deadens our senses and brings out the worst in us and just presents things on a platter. Like we've, uh, you know, our brains, we've all licked a nuclear reactor and we can't think for ourselves. And uh, I love good art and good literature that pauses and forces us to say, there's a lot more going on here. Um, than what meets the eye and that and often and I think O'Connor does a great job who tells us something and conveys this large theme without just having to come out and say it and I love that well and that's what I love about good movies you know our boy uh, our boy David Dark boy I bet he would love me saying that our boy (laughs) David Dark uh, did a whole chapter on the Coen brothers and I absolutely love the Coen brothers because the movie No Country for Old Men changed my life. It changed the way I watch film. It changed the way I think about film. And, and I, I mean, 
and and he just does such a great job of showing how they are able to create a world and, and you know when when no country for old men ended and i was in the theater two people behind me ruined tried to ruin the experience for me the first person <laughs> said i want my money back and, and I, I i refrained i refrained from saying something but then the next person said well did he really kill that lady and so help me i wanted to turn around and go did you watch any of the film were you awake <laughs> you know, put your popcorn down and at least figure out what's happening in front of you because that's art. Art doesn't tell me. Yeah. Art, art brings me along and allows me to experience. Yep. That, well, I mean, again, you know, one of the, there's a really famous poem all about how to, how to read poetry. It's an introduction to poetry. Um, and it talks about how people uh, want and want to take poetry and like tie it to a chair and beat it with a hose and to get meaning out of it and i think there's there's so much truth to that in art in general it's like we don't want to think for ourselves we don't want to actually have to sit with it we don't have to chew on it we don't want to you know let it marinate in our in our minds and our thoughts we just want everything presented because we're so lazy and we want to beat a hose with it and just you know and yeah. so i think that's uh i think that's absolutely true yeah don't tell me I, I want to think that I'm hopefully smart enough that I can figure it out. Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, let you, Hey, have one more quote. We're running out of time. So we might not get five each, but I'll let you have the last one. So pick your best one. Oh boy. Now you go ahead and keep talking then. Cause now I got, <laughs> I got to get, let's see. I don't know how in the world I lose pages here. Well, when you have 12 pages full of stuff, I, I understand why. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. So anyway, um, I'm trying to think, um, yeah, let's just skip this. I was going to talk about listening. He says some very, very, very important stuff about listening. Uh, and we've already alluded to that today. And maybe we'll allude to it in the future. I, I think the spirituality of listening and the listening life are two books that every Christian should read. We got to do a better job listening to people. Uh, but I think I'm going to go here with I'll read these. I think I can even maybe get away with both of the Yeah, here we go. Um, in the case of media engagement is necessary. Excuse me, let me start again. In the case of media, engagement is a necessity. If we don't talk about what we're watching and hearing and taking in, we're really only addicts, taking in information without response. When we surrender our attention without thinking, critically, not necessarily negatively, the victory of a death-dealing matrix over our lives is nearly complete. Unless we talk back and talk about what passes before us, we're pretty well finished and the daily becomes a repulsive burden. Authenticity implies engagement. And Drew, that's what this whole podcast is about. It's about the fact that we can't just watch things. We can't just let things uh, enter our mind without taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. It is about us being able to understand the importance of, of watching, and, and you know what? It's in the conversation that I often realize, wait a minute, maybe I didn't fully understand that. And I'm able to look at Drew and say, thank you, Drew, for helping me fully understand that. Tell my friend Colby, thank you, Colby, for helping me make sure that I didn't miss God in these moments and that I didn't misunderstand it. Did you say you have a part B to that or is that the whole thing? Uh, well, I, I pretty much just slung it in there. Okay. Well, nice. Well, that was, that was crafty of you to pull it off. So, well, no, and I think I, I, I love what you're describing there. And I think that's absolutely true. That's the difference between just consumption and uh, you know, and worship, 
Honestly, I think that's I, that would be the word I would use. I think that's the difference between just you know having a my you know having no mental thought process put in. Let me sit and veg, and surf, and just watch and and uh, you know like a complete consumer, like at a buffet, and someone who worshipfully says, I, I am so intrigued. Every everything I watch and read. I'm looking for the divine. I'm looking for God. This is a spiritual act of worship that I believe he's speaking constantly. I think you're getting at that exact thing. So any, any last words you'd give on, on the book and just your recommendation for people reading it? Yeah. Um, I would just say, I mean, uh, some of the stuff is outdated, uh, because it was a lot of stuff like uh, from the Odelay album by, um, uh, Beck. Uh, but man, what a brilliant album that was. And I didn't even realize I devoured the thing so quickly. I never paid attention to the fact that it was written in 2002. Uh, so, you know, those first couple of chapters, like you said, are absolutely amazing. The last chapter on, um, you know, apocalyptic xenophilia is absolutely spectacular. You know, and this and, and we've read and, and we've commented on a couple of the thoughts from that. It's just this idea that we that we love the stranger and that we care about that, which you know, we will pay attention to that, which is unique, that which is weird, that which is different. We will notice those people and love them as they are, where they are, and be able to develop real conversations. No, that's awesome. Well, I, I could not thank you enough for uh, recommending the book. And yes, I think it says so much of what we're going to be trying to say in this podcast, some of what we've already said, and would just recommend uh, our audience pick it up. Um, read it, and I don't think they're going to be disappointed with some of the lessons that they're going to learn. Towers, antenna, transistors, radio waves, 35 millimeter, 780p, 1080p, 4K, and real D 3D. Analog, digital, Dolby Surround and Atmos, IMAX, and Sony Dynamic. Beats, Sennheiser, Ultimate Ears, Bose, Audio Technica. Condenast, Viacom, Time Warner, Gannett, Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, Macmillan, Motorola, Apple, Samsung, LG, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, Edge, Strangers, You, Me, Friends, God is on the air, in the air, in print, and transmitting.